You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. If you've ever been called on to testify in court, it can be a pretty nerve-wracking thing. The seriousness and weight of being able to speak on record about the information you know on a certain subject or of a particular incident, all to be used to determine the fate of someone or the outcome of a case. I've only had to testify in court once, and it was when I lived overseas. It was a workman's compensation case, so not like a criminal trial or anything, much to my relief. But a friend was living with me for a short period while he got back on his feet and one afternoon had headed off to work in the warehouse where he had just been hired, only to call me a short while later asking if I could pick him up and take him to the doctor. There had been an incident with a forklift and he had been injured. Well, months later, I was called on to testify in the workman's compensation case as there was some conflict in the situation regarding the employer wanting to pay. And my testimony would somehow prove the guy had been fine before coming to work and that we had been hanging out at home watching soccer just prior and not out partying or compromising his sobriety or anything, but that it was a legitimate work injury. What was most challenging for me in this need to testify was that these official proceedings were going to be in the Slovenian language. And while I spoke well in conversation and daily life, the formality of the situation kind of upped the ante. And when I walked in and saw the judge and the poor stenographer who would need to write down every word I say and try to dictate my testimony with my accent, my botched grammar, and other elements of imperfect Slovene, well, I was pretty nervous when I took the stand. There, under oath, I was conscious about each word I said, wondering if I was saying the right things or saying them correctly, or if I was saying it in a way that would hurt or help my friend. All under the questioning of the attorney, the stern look of the judge, and the confused look of the stenographer trying to keep up with my own unique version of the Slovene language. As followers of Jesus, we are all called to testify, to share what we know, to speak about what we've experienced, to proclaim the truth that we have been witnesses to, and that can feel pretty overwhelming or intimidating or like a work of responsibility that we at times might want to avoid. And we may not always feel like we have the right words or if we're saying the right things or if we can articulate it just right. But unlike my experience on the witness stand where I felt out of my comfort zone, Jesus promised us something for those moments when we will be called to testify. Acts 1.8 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When we are to testify, the power to do so granted to us by His grace, and the person of the Holy Spirit truly the one testifying as He comes upon us. And Jesus told His own disciples that they would not be the ones testifying per se. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And Jesus didn't sugarcoat it, telling them that testifying for him may be hard at times. Mark 13, 9 through 11. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. For when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. For whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. God calls us to testify, but promises to be right there and help us do so when the time comes for it. Paul had testified in the city of Thessalonica, and it didn't last long, and it didn't go over too well. While some of the Greeks and leaders in the synagogue responded by accepting Jesus, some of the Jewish leaders were envious and stirred up drama and a dangerous mob, causing Paul and his team to flee town, lest their own safety and lives be in danger. And they caused too many problems for the new believers who had to stick around in Thessalonica. 
But the testimony they gave, even though they were there for just about three weeks before having to get out of Dodge, well, it was impactful. And there were new believers in Thessalonica, a baby church, and they were near and dear to Paul's heart. So some months later from the city of Corinth, Paul is writing back to encourage them, telling them that they were being prayed for and that they were off to a good start in their faith with their work of faith, their labor of love and patience of hope as they begin to see this world and life through an eternal lens, one that focused on God's plans and purposes and the ultimate expectation of Jesus to return and set everything right. These believers were elect. They could be secure in their faith, that God had them in the palm of his hand, no matter how tough things were. On this podcast, Paul writes to them about their testimony and that everyone is talking about this little band of believers in Thessalonica and what Jesus was doing in their lives. We jump back in to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. Paul remembers testifying in Thessalonica, which had not been that long ago, and their response when they heard. He writes in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The gospel came to these in Thessalonians. That was something that Paul was passionate about, that people heard the gospel clear and plainly, and that he and those that he worked with would not get in the way of the gospel. As he wrote later in 2 Corinthians, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Saying it won't be our fault if they don't see the gospel, we make sure to manifest the truth, to make it clear. And then two verses later he writes, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. This can be a challenge, especially in our modern media-driven world, a muddying over the message and the messenger. In a world of cult of personality, confusion over who is telling us and what is being told, Paul was very conscious of not becoming the focal point of his ministry, but of making sure the gospel was clear and the gospel was shared. Paul didn't know exactly how long he would be in town. It turned out it was just three weeks, so he had an urgency to share the gospel. There's an approach to evangelism and sharing our faith called relationship evangelism, that through those relationships that we have over time, that people will see and come to know the gospel, though through the life that we live, and that eventually the doors might open to speak clearly what it is that we believe and what makes us so different. Relational evangelism can be very fruitful. It was something we saw to be very effective in ministering in Europe, a sort of post-Christian society where people had a deep religious tradition and were very turned off to, to the faith, but had years of growing callous to the church and its message. So relational evangelism always allows believers time and space to get up close and personal with people. It finds natural inroads to people's lives, common interests, common activities. It disarms people by allowing relationships to build all the while praying and asking God for opportunities to share the gospel more directly and for the boldness to do so when those times come. It can be a very effective approach, though it takes time and patience, but it can also be real easy to slip into continually building relationships and losing the urgency or preparedness to share the gospel. Paul never lost that urgency, and it's probably because he was often getting shoved out of town. So he had a way of cutting to the chase and a gifting that effectively did so, it can take discernment to know just when to shoot from the hip and share the gospel and when to patiently wait for God to open the door with someone he has been preparing or is still preparing to hear. But where Paul went, God had already been working and preparing and tilling, and the fields were white for harvest when he showed up. Paul was doing some relational evangelism in Thessalonica, as he writes there in verse 5, 
You know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, hoping that they would see a difference, one that could be used to bring the gospel. But the doors opened real quick to speak the gospel more directly, and those in the synagogue where they went were seeking truth. So Paul had clearly shared the gospel in Thessalonica, and he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. The message had not just been words. It was not just some new philosophy, as the Greeks were prone to dabble in and muse over. It wasn't just an exchange of ideas. When the Thessalonians heard it, it wasn't just a, well, that's good for you. I'm happy you found something that works for you. It was the gospel, the good news, that man is sinful, separated from God, and yet God loved us enough to send his son to come as a man, perfect, sinless, not just as an example, but to be the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place on the cross and resurrecting from the dead, God himself having paid the price for our sins, forgiveness now available. This didn't come in just word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. It was not just a message or philosophy or information. It wasn't just a class or seminar or research paper. It wasn't just a story or a news report of happenings or a retelling of historical events. The gospel came in power, power by the Holy Spirit. Now, we do see in scriptures that the gospel often shared the stage with accompanying signs and wonders, demonstrations of supernatural power. Mark 16, 20, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Acts 2, 43, then fear came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Acts 5, 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Acts 14.3, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That is one way the gospel can come forth in power, the testimony to the truth of what is being spoken. But signs and wonders are not always convincing. Even in Jesus' ministry, not everyone believed, even with the signs that Jesus was doing. John 12.37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So while there can be supernatural elements to bring credibility to the gospel, something that many a televangelist has tried to capitalize on, it's interesting how quickly movements that seek signs move away from the message. And the signs instead become the focal point, and the message takes a back seat, or gets convoluted, or watered down, or twisted to make room for even more signs. The power that Paul focuses on in these verses, the power that the gospel came with in Thessalonica, was in the transformed lives of these believers. The power that came of ripping them away from sin and going astray and living for the empty things of this world, and propelling them into lives in a mindset centered on Christ's kingdom. The power of the gospel was seen in just how quickly these believers had seen their lives turned around. That's something the gospel can and will do. You know, if someone sets out on some self-help regiment, there may be gradual change, progression towards something better. Sometimes people may see sudden changes in their lives as they dive in headlong to some new pursuit or principle or lifestyle change that they jump into. But friends and loved ones may say, well, it's just a phase. And they have probably witnessed them get into the latest fad or trend or pursuit and witnessed them fall back into old ways and habits after that initial drive wears off. Paul had seen it time and time again. The gospel came not just in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit. As they were born again, God's Spirit came to live within them, sealing them as his property, 
doing an internal transforming work, making new both the inside and the outside, and giving the power of the Spirit for continued victory, much more than man-centered self-help or efforts to turn over a new leaf. That would be the characteristic of any New Testament believer or church. The word would be powerful, as Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's wonderful to see someone come to faith and experience the power of the word, the convicting power of the word, that they are a sinner in need of saving, the converting power of the word, that there is only one way to be saved, and it's Jesus, the conforming power of the word, as the transformation begins and washing in and feeding upon the word makes us more like Jesus. Experiencing the power of the word is something that can be, can't be passed on from one generation to another. Each generation needs to experience the power of the gospel themselves, whether that be in society, in a local church, or even in a family. And this often happens in a second generation of believers, that they have heard the word has power and they know the word, but they personally have not seen or experienced the power of the word. I was reading in Joshua, and Moses has recently died. In fact, the whole generation that saw the deliverance from Egypt, all the signs and wonders, the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt, the miraculous Passover, the Red Sea crossing, that whole generation is gone. And while that generation knew the power of God, the power of the Lord firsthand, the next generation heading into the promised land knows it all secondhand. So what does the Lord do? He gives them their own opportunity to see the power of God, their own Red Sea crossing, this time at the Jordan River. As the priests enter, the waters cease, and the whole nation passes through on dry ground. The second time the nation has experienced this, but this time to the next generation. And as they pass through, Joshua, the new leader, has each tribe pick up one stone from the river bottom, temporarily dry for their miraculous crossing. And once they are all through and the priests exit the river and the waters return to their banks, we read at the end of Joshua 4. Then he, Joshua, spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, when he dried up before us until which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God did it a generation ago, and he did it again, so that that generation going into the land would know the hand of the Lord, that his hand was powerful, that they had their own experience and testimony of what God had done in their midst. Each generation needs to experience a move of God. They cannot ride on the testimony of those who have gone before them. They need to see God come through when they take steps of faith. They need to see the Lord show himself faithful in hardship and trials. They need to see his power as they seek him. They need to see God deliver when they stand at Red Sea or Jordan crossings. The time is ripe for the next generation to see a move of God in power. As Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and quoted from the prophet Joel in Acts 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, that this generation would have a testimony of the moving and power of God as he works in their lives. And in this day, 
and that the powerful gospel would transform lives and usher in the kingdom. The Thessalonians knew the power of the gospel, and Paul writes then in verses 6 through 8, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. They needed the power of God because it got hard real fast in Thessalonica. The persecution and hardship that came with the gospel almost immediate. As it says here, they received the word in much affliction. The word affliction, it means oppressing, such as the pressing of the grapes, pressing until those grapes burst. Imagine harvest time at the vineyard, the vines heavy with grapes, clusters picked, then put in the vats, that juice of the grape being squeezed out by the pressing. That is the effect of affliction. It squeezes out what is inside. And what was inside these new believers, what was squeezed out of them in the pressing? Well, we know when we're pressed, when we're in, under stress and pressure, we can see what's really inside our hearts. But what was in the heart of these believers? The joy of the Holy Spirit. While the hardships they faced in their testifying of Christ were not pleasant, we see in Thessalonica that a man even named Joseph was attacked at his house. Sorry, Jason was attacked at his house, and he was fined, having to pay security for his involvement with Pi with Paul. But there was still joy, not a natural joy or a joy of circumstances or a joy of feeling, but joy of the Holy Spirit. That was what was squeezed out. God had done a work in these new believers that was not a natural response. And so instead of fear or worry or anxiety or anger or frustration or desperation, they had joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a bold thing to ask the Lord for sometimes. We often pray that God will change our circumstances because we see how badly we are responding. We see what's coming out of our hearts and we don't like the way we are feeling or reacting. So Lord, help me out here. Change things so that I can get back to feeling okay about it. But we will all face things that won't change at least not right away. And we ask the Lord to give us a new portion of his spirit, to change us in the midst of it, to change our hearts in the midst of it, and to give us his heart in all of it. I remember hitting a really rough patch early in our marriage, and I had on my share of, I'd done my share of praying, Lord, change this, change that, change circumstances, and on and on. And one morning, exhausted from praying and trying, I finally said, Lord, I don't know if you plan to change things, but I guess now I'm going to ask. If nothing ever changes, I'm tired of the tension and the frustration and the other junk going on in my heart and mind regarding the season, so I ask that you just give me the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of it all, even if nothing ever changes. And he did. It was pretty quick. Something just shifted in my heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all the other fruit of the Spirit. It wasn't perfect, but I definitely noticed it. And things did eventually change for us. I changed, she changed, our circumstances changed but how good it was to see his spirit give joy when there wasn't much to be happy over. Paul wrote there, And you became followers of us and of the Lord. They had seen Paul, an example of having joy and affliction. Remember, on Paul's second missionary journey, just prior to Thessalonica, they had been in Philippi. And after testifying and seeing a demon-possessed girl saved, Paul and Silas were afflicted, pressed like grapes, their clothes stripped from them, beaten with rods and many stripes. It tells us whipped. And they were beat up badly, and yet they sang for joy that night in prison. Just before the earthquake came that opened the prison, though they stayed in order to testify to the prison guard why they had not fled in their purpose for being there. On the heels of that, they came to Thessalonica. Think about it. Their wounds were still fresh. 
their conflict with the Romans was still fresh. The experience in prison, it was brand new. I imagine Paul wincing in pain as he sat down or stood up, or someone gave him a hug and patted him on the back in the way we sort of do when we hug someone, touching that sensitive tissue that was beaten and ripped open. The wounds were fresh and the pain still there, maybe even bleeding through their clothes at times. People asking, what happened to you guys? And they shared the story of their affliction for the name of Jesus and the joy that they had experienced in the midst of it all, a joy unexplainable that let them sing praise in the midst of the trial that they had been in. And they became there in Thessalonica followers of Paul and his team and of the Lord. When Paul says that they followed us, it speaks as of an element of personal discipleship. Remember, there was no New Testament yet. So the only example and teaching they had there in Thessalonica on how to live as a Christian It was by seeing Paul and his team and how they lived and how they worshiped and how they responded. So while they were to really be following Jesus, Paul knew that they would also follow him, follow his example to them. Of course, we are to make disciples of Jesus and not disciples of ourselves. But it's something Paul repeats a few times in Scripture, that they should follow him. Because Paul knew where he was headed, and they would do no wrong going that way too. We see Paul write about this theme several times in his letters. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Philippians 3.17 Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 We testify to others about Jesus, whether we need to or not. And others follow our example. Someone is always looking to us. Paul had his eyes on Jesus, so he invited them into discipleship and let them see his life and even the struggles and afflictions so that they too could learn to walk faithfully with Jesus. Now, as Paul is writing back to the Thessalonians, he wants to let them know something. Though they started suffering for the gospel very early on in their faith, by their doing so, he writes, You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Though young in the Lord themselves, they were already testifying to those around them. Macedonia, that's the area of Greece around Thessalonica. Places like Philippi and Berea, they were encouraged by the faith of the Thessalonians. Achaia, that's Athens and Corinth, where Paul is writing from. And in every place, he says, their story was a testimony and being used by God. Paul said that from them, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It means a loud ringing sound as of a trumpet blast. It was a bullhorn, magnified, echoing. People were hearing and paying attention, so much so that their faith toward God had gone out, and Paul and his team did not need to say anything because the testimony of the Thessalonians was loud and clear. How quickly news had spread. Remember, Thessalonica was on the Ignatian Way, or the Via Ignatia. The Romans built amazing, long-lasting roads, and they connected the whole empire to Rome. At the peak of the Roman Empire, there were over 250,000 miles of roads. News could travel fast, and communities were connected. The Via Ignatia was built in the 2nd century BC, connecting Rome with the eastern capital of Constantinople, which would be modern-day Istanbul, through the areas that are modern-day Albania, Macedonia, Greece, and the European part of Turkey. This Via Ignatia, it allowed the news to spread quickly and how the testimony of the Thessalonians was being shared, and no one had to say anything. People were just talking about how different these Thessalonians were after Jesus, something we'll look at in a second. But the news went quickly. There were roads that helped this information spread. What about us today? What avenues does God have for your faith to be shared? 
parts of the Via Ignatia still exist today, a testimony of how good the Roman roads were. But we have so many avenues to be able to share in today's world, avenues through which we can deliver and share our testimony of what God has done. Technology, for sure, has given us this opportunity. It's one reason for the Verbatim Word podcast. I have no clue how far it will reach, who's listening, when and where. I've had random people I never expected share that they had listened to it. I have a friend who is a gamer and wants to use that as a platform and an avenue to impact that culture. And he started a channel and a podcast called ATK, Advance the Kingdom. Another friend just stepped out to do a fitness venture, leaving her work in the retail world and getting certified to do group fitness, starting a venture called Fierce Fitness, being a light in that community. That's her avenue. Another friend who focuses on Christian artists who aren't making Christian art necessarily, her books and workshops and podcasts under the name Kingdom Arts Initiative, making inroads to communities of artists. That's her avenue. Those are their Via Ignatia's, avenues through which the Lord can sound forth. What are yours? Which ones has the Lord given to you? Perhaps there's something new and fresh that the Lord wants to do in that area to make it a platform for the gospel and for your testimony. Paul said when it came to the Thessalonians, the message was loud and clear. Jesus was real, the gospel had saved them, and they were different because of him. Looking at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the biggest parts of their testimony, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Remember, in Thessalonica, it was mostly Gentiles that got saved, Greeks who were seeking in the synagogue, and a few Jews and some of the leading women. Most of the Jews were envious and stirred up the mob. But this church was mostly pagan believers, who a short time before worshipped idols, went to the temples, were caught up in the idolatrous worship and all the carnal things that went with it. These were not necessarily refined church folk, not necessarily religious people. They had come out of the world and the depths of it, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A powerful testimony knows what it is like to be delivered from something, to be set free from old life and old ways, from the sinful nature, and to be given the mercy and grace to walk with Jesus, a new life. These believers were delivered. They weren't dabbling. They weren't doing better at the idolatry thing. They were not doing less idolatrous stuff. They turned from it, were delivered from it. Some pe- sometimes people can measure their Christian life in degrees. Well, I'm not as bad as I used to be, or, well, I'm doing less of the things I used to do. But they have yet to experience the deliverance of the Lord. He is a deliverer. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And though we may wrestle with our flesh or our sin or our past, though we may struggle to forget the things we have practiced and become experts at in the past, though we might need to resist the temptations that draw us back into the things that we have been set free from, Jesus is a deliverer. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And being delivered from their idols was part of their testimony in Thessalonica, as they turned to the true and living God, realizing that their former idols were powerless, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The last part affirming that following idols makes us dumb, blind, deaf, senseless, and powerless. The idol worship. 
putting anything else other than God first. It leaves us powerless. But the power that has been demonstrated in the lives of the Thessalonians, it spoke, it resonated, it sounded forth like a trumpet, and people were impacted by their testimony and what hope it had filled them with. Looking at verses 9 and 10, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to, de- had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their hope was not just for the here and now. They didn't just have a better life now with a God who could do things for them compared to the idols that could do nothing for them in this life or the next. They were waiting for his Son from heaven serving the true and living God. Jesus told parables about the kingdom and how the servants were to wait for their master's return. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. But if that servant says in his heart, my master has delayed his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. The Thessalonians were now serving the living and true God, no longer idols. And they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul will speak more of this in this letter and the next to the Thessalonians, the promise of the return of Jesus. When Jesus comes for his church, and then Jesus comes with his church, delivering us from the wrath to come. God's wrath is being stored up for a world that rejects him, and he will pour it out in due time. And that wrath could be what is called the Great Tribulation, a period of intense tribulation on this earth. And other people think that this wrath being referred to here that we're being delivered from could be after death for those who die apart from Christ, and it's probably both. But the Thessalonians knew that now that they had the testimony in Jesus, that they were spared from the wrath of God, Jesus having taken the wrath upon himself the just for the unjust, and in this they would rest, having escaped the old life, now full of hope for what was to come. No longer anxious or worried or fearful, because they had heard that God loved them and sent a Savior and had responded to his offer in Jesus, the powerful gospel, so they looked forward with hope. The psalmist gave thanks in Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Let the redeemed say so. Let them give testimony of all that God has done for them. Our lives are meant to testify, to speak the gospel to those around us. Otherwise, he could have saved us and taken us home immediately. But there are others who need to hear. And if we're engaged in a relationship evangelism, taking our time, letting it unfold slowly what it is and who we are and what we believe, maybe it's time to speak up. Maybe those relationships are deep enough that we should tell them the full reason for who we are and why we live the way that we live. Maybe it's time to let the redeemed of the Lord say so, to tell them why your life is different. And even when things are hard, as they were to the Thessalonians, our testimonies are a powerful witness of what we believe about God and how we live for him in the midst of it all. And things will grow harder, especially for the believer. And the enemy will accuse and attempt and, 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 and attack. But as it says in Revelation 12:11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Our testimonies of what Jesus has done is doing a powerful thing in the battles we face, something that we need to stick to and not love our lives even to the death. And though we look for his return and the establishment of his kingdom, now is the time to testify. 
the apostles wondered after Jesus' resurrection if then was the time for the kingdom to come. And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The kingdom will come, and we will be delivered from the wrath that is to come. So for now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we testify wherever we are. So Lord, give us a renewed awe of the gospel and all that Jesus accomplished and what it means in our lives and in this world. And Lord, give us a burning desire to share the truth and open doors to us to do so. And may the word and message be powerful, Lord, not just our words, our our own interpretation of it, but the powerful word of God, a testimony of your continued heart to seek and save that which is lost. Lord, may we be busy about our Father's business when you come. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.